sounds like a plot straight out of a Hitchcock movie. A prominent foreign journalist enters his country's consulate in Istanbul to pick up the papers he needs to marry the woman he loves, but he never comes out. After his worried fiance contacts the local authorities, they launch an investigation. They're denied access to the consulate, and soon they get intelligence reports, still unconfirmed, that the journalist had been murdered, his body dismembered with a bone saw. For days, the mystery of what happened to Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi and why has gripped the world's attention and raised new tensions between the United States and its longtime allies in Riyadh. We'll talk to a longtime friend of Khashoggi, who a few short weeks ago was smoking cigars with him in Northern Virginia, just before he left for his fateful trip to Istanbul. A trip he had hoped would start a new life of marital bliss, but may have ended instead with his brutal death. It's one of our subjects, along with an update on the Russia investigation and some fascinating new insights into the Supreme Court Brett Kavanaugh has now joined on today's Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just say Russia yes no is a ruse. I'm Michael Isakov, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, uh, this Khashoggi story is wild, and it's really, truly a crime mystery uh, that has all sorts of international implications. But I got to tell you, just for the start, on Monday, the very day this story is blowing up in the international press, I get an email from the Saudi Embassy in Washington uh, telling me that His Royal Highness Prince Khalid bin Salman bin Abdulaziz, the Saudi ambassador to the United States, requests the pleasure of my company at the National Day reception for the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Thursday, October 18th. That's coming up just next week. Um, I can't think of a more awkward time for the Saudis to be holding their National Day reception when the entire world and the U.S. government is demanding answers about what happened to one of its most prominent critics. Well, first of all, pl a pleasure of your company is a figure of speech, Mike. I, I don't think there's actually any government. I don't think there's any I government. I don't think there's any government in the world that actually uh, wants the pleasure of your company. Uh, but having said that, you know, yeah. uh, as your editor, you absolutely should go. Um, it may be a little awkward, uh, but um, you know, speaking of awkwardness. Um, the the next week uh, there is a a big investor conference um, in Saudi Arabia that that uh, uh, the government the Saudi government is putting on. I think they they're calling it Davos in the desert, and there are many uh, you know uh, titans of American business who are going to be there. Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, is supposed to be there. And man, talk about awkwardness uh, given um, all uh, that has uh, come out. And and I think actually uh, the Crown Prince. 
um, is supposed to be uh, speaking there. And now he's been uh, pinned uh, potentially as the person who actually orchestrated uh, this operation um, by U.S. intelligence. So uh, it'll be very interesting to see whether these uh, companies start pulling out and whether Mnuchin ends up going. Um, you know, this is a uh, th- look. Uh, this is a the co- the relationship between Saudi Arabia is very complicated uh, for a lot of reasons. They're, they're really important regional power, obviously bulwark against the Iranians, incredibly wealthy oil reserves, and all of that. And so, generally speaking, U.S. diplomats want to sweep this kind of controversy under the rug. Uh, if it turns out um, that Jamal Khashoggi was lured to the consulate in uh, in Istanbul uh, murdered and dismembered. Very difficult to sweep that under the rug. Right, exactly. And look, it, it, it is worth noting, and we're going to talk about this with our uh, with our first guest coming up. Uh, Jamal Khashoggi was not some wild eyed bomb throwing critic. I mean, he was actually very tight with a lot of members of the royal family. He was a principal advisor to Prince Turkey, uh, who had been the head of Saudi intelligence for years, and then was the Saudi ambassador uh, to the um, uh, to the United Kingdom. Uh, so, you know, his criticisms of, uh, of, of MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, were the, the critiques of an insider who really wanted his country to reform, who wasn't plotting a revolution, uh, who wasn't a terrorist. Um, so it makes it all the more puzzling that the Saudis would go to such extreme lengths to silence him. Exactly. And I think uh, we should go to our guest who will, uh, will, who I think will have some really interesting insights on that question. We now have on the line uh, Khalid Safori, a uh, Washington political consultant, analyst specializing in the Mideast, uh, and a friend of Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, Khalid, welcome to Skullduggery. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. So I want to ask you about uh, your relationship with Jamal Khashoggi and uh, your insights into uh, what might have prompted the Saudis to do what they apparently have done. Um, So just to start out, uh, you told me you had met with Khashoggi uh, at your house just a few weeks ago before he left for Istanbul. Yes, uh, yes, we... uh we met, uh, we frequently get together for cigars and uh, uh, for chat, and uh, so I used to see him uh, once in a while, uh, and we uh, we discussed at that time developments with Iran, uh, you know, the beginning of September, if you remember, there was new developments, uh, administration was increasing uh, hostility and a criticism of Iran, uh, we're discussing uh, uh, Bolton's John Bolton's speech, and uh, so that it was a mostly discussion about Iran and how it will affect the Gulf region if there was a war or a military conflict between the U.S. and Iran. And what was his attitude? Uh, was he uh, approving of the U.S. Uh, ramped up pressure on Iran, which of course was the Saudis' traditional enemy, uh, or did he have some reservations? Well, let's put it this way: uh, this way, he was never a fan of Iran. And he was uh, much closer to the Saudi official position that Iran causes havoc in the area, causes many problems, whether it's Syria or Iraq or Yemen. So he always defended the Saudi position. I remember 
we hosted him on Capitol Hill to speak about the war in Yemen in April, and he defended the Saudi position. He said Saudi Arabia had to go to Yemen to stop Iran from expanding in that region, and some people accused him of being Saudi agent. So he defended many of the Saudi government official positions. Uh, so he was never an enemy of the Saudi government. He never wanted to overthrow it. He just wanted reforms. Right. Although I should point out that his last column for the Washington Post, and I should emphasize that one of the reasons this has gotten so much attention is because Khashoggi was a contributor, a regular op-ed contributor to the Washington Post. But his last column on September 11th, the headline was Saudi Arabia's crown prince prince must restore dignity to his country by ending Yemen's cruel war. So he was criticizing the Saudi uh, uh, military intervention in Yemen. No, in the beginning, he supported the intervention, but with the amount of casualties, especially civilian casualties and uh, a stalemate, no win situation. Uh, the Saudis were not getting any uh, advancement on the ground. He was saying it's time now to stop. So, no, and he said that in April in the uh, lecture I mentioned. Uh, He said, I supported the war in the beginning, but I think now it's time to stop it. Uh, He thought that the continuation of this conflict in Yemen uh, only uh, cost Saudi Arabia lives and uh, money and arms. And uh, many Yemeni, uh, the Yemeni population been the biggest victim. So uh, he was for stopping the war, but the initial launching of the war, he supported it. Well, uh, Khalid, one of the things that uh, Mike and I were talking uh, talking about before you joined the program is we're just, it seems perplexing to us uh, that uh, someone like uh, Jamal uh, Khashoggi, who, uh, yes, is a critic, uh, but has also been a supporter, has been loyal to the to the royal family. Um, is uh, there are plenty of other uh, dissidents out there who are also uh, have been very critical of the uh, of, of of the Saudi government and the royal family. So why? Um, what is? Do you have a theory as to why uh, uh, the Saudi government would uh, go to these lengths, um, expose themselves to, to so much? Uh, controversy and, and diplomatic peril. You know, I should say we don't know exactly what happened yet, but certainly uh, there is uh, a lot of more than just speculation that this was something uh, done by the Saudi government and perhaps even orchestrated by the Crown Prince uh, Mohammed uh, uh, bin Salman himself. Well, you know, there uh, it's a it's a difficult question because you don't know what's going in the mind of Mohammed bin Salman. But I believe he has no tolerance for the slightest disagreement. Uh, and Jamal having the uh, uh, Washington Post as his uh, medium to get his idea was for them is a scary thing. The Washington Post, one of the most important newspapers in America, probably one of the most important in the world. And for uh, a Saudi who doesn't see eye to eye with the regime or the government or the kingdom, uh, for the crown prince is a big danger. He doesn't like anyone to challenge him. And he ended up putting many reformers, reformers in jail. And he kept some of the most extremist religious Wahhabis out of jail, the people that called for jihad in Iraq against the U.S. or people that called Shia must be killed because they are heretics. Those guys are still surrounding him. They all have uh, their privileges. They're all having 
uh, they still have their power. And the people that ask for reforms for women to drive, for some democratic uh, changes, for some sort of freedom of press, all those guys are in jail. And he said that. Jamal said that. He said he is jailing the wrong people. He said that in a column he wrote in the Washington Post a year ago. Yeah, and I think... uh, Khaled, you indicated that that was the column, and I've got it here in front of me now, October 31st, 2017. Saudi Arabia's crown prince wants to crush extremists, but he's punishing the wrong people. That that was the column that really put him on the wrong track with the Saudi royal family, with uh, MBS himself. Um, and did, did was, was Jamal aware of that, that that column really had ruffled feathers back in Riyadh? He probably did, especially that article came in the middle of this uh, charm campaign that the Saudis and Prince Mohammed bin Salman was having. They spent hundreds of millions of dollars in the U.S. and the West to selling the idea that he's a reformer, that he's going to uh, change Saudi Arabia into the 21st century, that he's going to uh, build these huge projects and transform the economy into non-oil economy, all these big promises. So for someone to come and write something like this, that's saying the guy is not really what he is telling the world he is fully angered Mohammed bin Salman a lot. And you indicated, I believe, that in one of your conversations with him a few months back, that he had told you that the Saudis had were trying to lure him back to Riyadh, offering him a job. Tell us what he told you about that and what his reaction to that was. Oh, uh, he told me that Saud Al Qahtani. Saud Al Qahtani is a. Uh, and a close advisor to Prince Mohammed bin Salman. He has the title of minister, that's like cabinet. Uh, he called Jamal and he asked him to return. He told him the crown prince would love him back and he would like to give him a position as an advisor, close advisor. He said, we know you're a loyal Saudi, you love your country and we love you. Uh, and the call came very early in the morning. He didn't tell me what time, but he said it's early. Uh, he, we discussed this at 9.30 in the morning. A few hours before uh, I saw him, he had called. So I said, so what do you think? Would you go? He said, no way. Are you kidding me? He said, I don't trust them one bit. And why didn't he trust them? He knew. You know, Jamal was part of the Saudi establishment. He worked with the King Abdullah and his... Uh, 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 close circle. He worked with King Fahad in close circle. He was very close to the royal family. He was a senior advisor to Prince Turkey, who was the head of the Saudi intelligence before he worked for him. But you know, Jamal was always a guy with independent mind. Jamal was the editor of two newspapers in Saudi Arabia. He was fired twice for taking an un- unorthodox line. When he was the editor of Okaz, uh, he called for the, the government to marginalize the religious Wahhabi establishment. And he said that they have too much power and they're destroying the country and we are in the 21st century. He was fired. He did similar article in another paper and he was fired. And uh, about two years ago, uh, he spent a year establishing a new Arabic TV station in Bahrain called Al Arab TV. And that TV station aired for 24 hours and was shut down within 24 hours because one of the shows they had, they brought a Bahraini opposition guy from London on the show 
and they shut down that paper, that uh, TV station. Jamal was banned from writing by the Saudi government in a letter published by the Ministry of Information, was circulated and published in all newspapers, banning him and another gentleman who resides now in exile in London, uh, banning them from writing in any paper and even tweeting. Uh, and he found that very insulting, and I think he started planning to leave Saudi Arabia after that. Uh, Khaled, there's a the theory that the original uh, plan uh, was to lure um, uh, Khashoggi to Saudi Arabia and detain him there, but perhaps not kill him. And that um, in the end, that was not successful. So they managed, they had this opportunity at the consulate in Istanbul, and that, but it went awry somehow. Do you give credence to that, or do you think uh, this was always uh, intended as an assassination? It's possible. No, I would not rule it out. Probably that's what they wanted. But uh, the big question mark, why would they have forensic doctor with them? Yeah, that's a chilling, that was a chilling yeah. detail. That's right. This is part of the team that flew in from, from Saudi Arabia into Istanbul. It, they, it included a forensic doctor. Yes. So that's a big question mark. But uh, I don't know. It's a, it's a possible theory. I think the Saudis probably leaked it to the British press because it was published yesterday by two British newspapers, and the Saudis probably tried to leak it that way. And let me ask you about what you think uh, the the reaction uh, will be um, and what kind of diplomatic re- repercussions uh, the Saudi government may, may, may pay. I mean, the, the, re- the initial reaction from the U.S. government was a little muted, um, and it's taken a few days uh, before President Trump made some stronger statements. Um, uh, do you think that um, that ultimately, um, because of the importance of uh, Saudi Arabia in the region as a bulwark against Iran, as uh, the, the wealth of the Saudi government, the important position it, it plays in our geopolitics, that at the end of the day, uh, we'll go back to business as usual? Or do you think that this is some kind of a turning point that we'll really have uh, important uh, implications for the relationship going forward. I think in normal circumstances, probably this will be a turning point. But under this White House, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, this is the most unorthodox administration ever, and uh, uh, Trump doesn't. Uh, it's difficult to predict his reaction. Uh, he has lots of hopes, and I think he said that yesterday on TV. Uh, some reporter that. Uh, uh, we don't want to lose business and uh, and stuff like that. So he looks at Saudi Arabia as a piggy bank that he can get money and create jobs in the U.S. He probably would not care much about uh, one more journalist being killed. Uh, his rhetoric against journalists probably encouraged the Saudis to do it because probably thought if they killed the journalist, Trump hates journalists and he would not react if we kill one journalist. Wow, that's a that's a fascinating point. Uh, just final question, Khalid. Uh, uh, when you met with him uh, and were smoking cigars at your house a few weeks ago, um, was did he express any anxiety or concern about his welfare? He was about to fly to Istanbul to pick up these uh, documents so he can marry his fiance. Uh, was there any? Uh, did he have any hint that he might be in danger? Not really. No, I think. Uh... Uh, many uh, people who run away uh, from exile in Middle East, Istanbul, and London are becoming refuge for many of them, not only Islamists. I mean, there are some Egyptian secularist and left-wing activists are taking refuge in Istanbul. So, and I think uh, that's why uh, he thought 
he felt safe in Turkey because many political refugees who were residing in Istanbul, whether they're from UAE or from Egypt or from Saudi Arabia and other countries in the region. So, no, I don't think he was apprehensive or was scared of going to Turkey at all. And what was your reaction when you heard he had not emerged from the consulate? Um, I was really surprised. I was shocked that he even went to the consulate. So that was my first reaction. That's probably not uh, accurate news because I don't think he'll go there. And so, I mean, later on, I realized because he told me he'll never go to the embassy here in Washington. Why would he go in Turkey? Really? Um, yeah. By the way, I, I, I don't know if you got the same invite I did, but it's the uh, Saudi National Day reception at the embassy uh, this coming Thursday, October 18th. Uh, are you planning on going? <laughs> no. No way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. no way. Well, uh, probably just as well. But as a journalist, uh, I, I, I feel obligated. Uh, Khalid, thanks uh, for joining us on Skullduggery, and we'll definitely want to have you back as this story unfolds. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much, Colin. Thank you. Appreciate it. When we return, we speak with Washington Post national security correspondent Greg Miller about his new book, The Apprentice. And he also shares his thoughts about the disappearance of his Post colleague, Jamal Khashoggi. All right. We are um, joined now by Greg Miller, a national security reporter for The Washington Post and the author of the new book, The Apprentice. Trump, Russia, and the Subversion of American Democracy. Um, Greg, uh, welcome to Skullduggery, and more importantly, welcome to the club of people who write books about Trump and Russia. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. I appreciate it. Um, I, and listen, I want to talk about the book. Um, it's a really great read uh, and fills in a lot of blanks. But um, since you are there in the Washington Post newsroom, the story everybody's talking about right now is uh, Jamal Khashoggi, Washington Post contributor, who has disappeared ever since entering the uh, Saudi consulate in Istanbul last week uh, amid reports that um, he was murdered inside. Um, Greg, what do you know uh, right now about your colleague, Jamal Khashoggi, and what happened to him? Well, thanks for asking. I mean, it's been a devastating period here at the post and I think more broadly from for journalists everywhere um, um, because this is part of a wave of of terrible things that are happening to reporters or columnists or journalists he he obviously we have a very close connection to him here at the post he wrote a a column for our global opinion section where he was often critical about the Saudi government obviously and you know, it might be easier to get away with that when you're doing that. I mean, when you're doing that for the Washington Post and the Saudis are worried about that voice and that criticism surfacing in front of important people here, I guess that, you know, that's always a a, a dangerous thing, but nobody ever expects it to be this dangerous. And it's really, really just totally disturbing. I mean, all, what we know now, we're still just sort of trying to piece this together is that um, he goes to the consulate um, with his fiancée and never comes back out. Uh, and that um, some of our reporting from there and here suggests that U.S. intelligence had some clue that the Saudis were going to try to do something to him, capture him, hurt him in some way. And there's just a lot more questions than answers right now about whether that if that if that's true, what yeah. did they do with that information and where does it go? Yeah, Greg, um, before uh, the show, we were talking a little bit about some of this really gruesome um, information that's coming out about this case. Um, 
you know, uh, exactly what this uh, team of Saudi assassins um, did uh, to Khashoggi and the idea that uh, that his body was dismembered. We don't know if any of that is true. Um, and the source, uh, you were making the point that the source of this information is the Turks. Um, and so talk a little bit about what, um, you know, the basis for what we're hearing and, and how credible you think it is, given the fact that the Washington Post reported, your paper reported that there was this intelligence, the Saudi, uh, Saudi, conversa- Saudi officials talking about uh, this, some kind of a plot. I mean, I think that's pretty solid. I mean, I've heard that from uh, here in the newsroom in Washington as well, from uh, the American side. I mean, obviously, this is the early stages of this story, and you always have to be cautious um, in, in breaking and developing things like this that, that you're going to misunderstand or get things wrong. But, um, yeah, I mean, uh, the, but, you know, all of these stories have also attributed this alleged dismemberment to Turkish sources, and I guess I just feel like, you know, God, I hope that's one I, uh, for for this poor person's sake and his family's sake, I hope that's not true. And also, I just hope we're not rushing to conclude that, uh, based on some Turkish sources, that this is exactly what happened And and, um, before we get to the bottom. So, Greg, just to connect this to the subject of your book, um, obviously the Russians have been quite aggressive in taking extreme measures uh, over the years, most recently with uh, the poisoning of uh, Sergei Skripal in uh, in England. Um, is it fair to assume or suspect that... Um, because the Russians have gotten away with things like that, it might have emboldened uh, folks like the Saudis to uh, take the same route. Yeah, Mike. I mean, that's a that's such a great and big, important question right now, right? Is there is does the is the U.S. and the and President Trump in some way contributing to kind of a culture of impunity around stuff like this? Uh, in part because of how. He looks at Russia, um, and uh, obviously, you know, this is a guy who, during the campaign, said, you know, when confronted with direct questions about Putin's a killer, how can you say such nice things about him? Says, you know, uh, we're, what we're so good, we're so nice. Um, and you mentioned the, the the attempted assassinations in Salisbury, and in the book I write about how after. After that, it took a Herculean effort by his national security staff to keep him on board with imposing sanctions and expelling Russians after that assassination attempt. I mean, he wanted to pull the plug on it until the very end. Um, and yeah, so how does how does the how does this relate? How do you disentangle this, and how much can we say this? Uh, encourages other regimes to think that this is an okay, this is something you're going to get away with in this day and age. Well, I, I, you know, um, w- one thing um, I think it's worth pointing out is uh, Khashoggi is a journalist. Um, and yeah. uh, there have been a lot of people who've expressed uh, enormous concern that uh, President uh, Trump's uh, antipathy um, and very harsh rhetoric, uh, at least rhetoric so far, toward journalists um, has given has given license to uh, dictators around the world to to do these kinds of um, things. Right, enemy of the people, exactly. Um, but I wanted to ask you, um, Greg, uh, one I think interesting observation, um, if not conclusion, or, uh, perhaps theory in your book is you know there's been all this speculation about. Uh, Putin's uh, uh, Trump's obsequiousness toward uh, 
Putin and um, almost uh, subservience, uh, some, some might even say. Um, and, um, you know, people have speculated uh, that, that it, you know, it's the idea of compromise, um, the, you know, the famous P-tape or does uh, or do the Russians have something on, on Trump's business dealings in Moscow that they can use to essentially blackmail him with? But what you uh, theorize is what if uh, the compromise that, that Putin has on Trump, you know, has been out there in plain sight all along um, and um, uh, want to talk about that. I think you know what I'm getting at here. Sure, sure. I mean, I think you, you raised some of the theories, right? This has been one of the big questions hanging over Trump as president from the very outset. Why does he do what he does? Why does he treat Vladimir Putin the way that he does? And um, the, the farther along we get, you know, I sort of put these theories in a kind of a hierarchy now that, yeah, maybe there's a P-tape, maybe there's some compromise on him with prostitutes. I don't know. Nobody's proven that. Nobody's established that, but certainly possible. But then when you look at how he has survived scandals of that nature, um, not completely unscathed, but relatively unscathed, it's hard to – maybe that wouldn't really give Russia definitive leverage on this guy if they had such a tape. Um, and then there's the, the financial interactions, which are we're, we're only beginning to sort of understand, and we're a long way from getting to the bottom of, and, and, I, and perhaps Mueller is going to illuminate us on that front, and perhaps there will be connections there that we just don't, we don't see and understand yet. But, you know, when I was in Helsinki, and I went there to cover this summit and to be in that room when Trump meets Putin, it just sort of occurred to me that, God, the, 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 the fiction that Trump clings to most fiercely is that there was no Russian interference. And Putin faced this question point blank during that press conference that they did. And he was in position to pull the rug out from under Trump right next to him if he had said, yeah, absolutely, we did this. Um, what leg would Trump have left to stand on and sort of cling to this idea? He, he always is pointing to Putin's denials and describes them as strong denials, which is for in Trump code, you know, just... Uh, high praise um, and sides with him over his intelligence service. What if he no longer had that excuse? Let's uh, um, the the title of the book, The Apprentice, is uh, an interesting one. Um, how'd you come up with it, and what are you trying to convey uh, by using that word as your title? Well, for starters, Russian roulette was taken by somebody. <laughs> so yeah. you know, there's so there's so there's that. In, in, um, insert insert Amazon plug right here. Isakov. Right. right. Um, uh, I, I you've chasing you know, me I, a bit. Right. So the the title to me just worked. Uh, you know, we kicked around other titles that seemed clunky, covert action, active measures and stuff. I mean, like nobody knows what, no, but no real person knows what those things mean. But The Apprentice sort of captured so much to me on many levels, right? It's the show that made Trump famous. He arrives in office really unprepared for the responsibilities of the presidency, like an apprentice. And you used a word a minute ago, subservience, that to describe his relationship to Vladimir Putin almost Sometimes he seems to be Putin's apprentice, aspires to conduct himself in office uh, in the way that Putin does, uh, envies the arrangement that Putin has. You don't have to put up with pesky special counsel investigations when you are the leader of Russia or a free press or a, a disobedient Congress or anything, right? Um, it's, uh, so I, that's, that's the explanation. 
Uh, Greg, uh, the the book um, justifiably has your name on it, uh, but you are showcasing uh, a lot of the reporting of your um, colleagues at the Washington Post as well as your own uh, Pulitzer Prize winning reporting. Um, there's, uh, I want you to talk a little bit about some of those uh, scoops uh, that that you all had, which form the basis of a lot of uh, this this uh, you know uh, continuing uh, uh, story. Uh, but one in particular. Um, was a, uh, a day when when uh, your colleague uh, Ellen uh, Nakashima comes back to the uh, newsroom and checks her mail and there's a there's a, a letter there and she opens it up and it kind of takes her breath away um, and uh, this was a letter unsigned from someone on the uh, Trump transition team uh, sounds like it came from Trump Tower um, that uh, described. Uh, a really astonishing uh, meeting, an important part of the uh, the puzzle here. Talk about that for a second. Yeah, that was uh, so. The, in the book, you're right. There, are, there's not a lot of this, but there are parts of the book where I sort of turn the camera inside the Post newsroom to describe how things unfolded here when there were really dramatic moments, and there were a lot of them during this stretch of our coverage of Trump and Russia and the campaign. And that was one of them. So Ellen is a close colleague, covers cyber issues for us, cybersecurity, and she. Um, just as you said, went to the newsroom or to the mailroom, and and there was this envelope there. Uh, and we all go to our mailroom these days and mostly just get press releases and other things that we throw in the trash. But this one had no return address on it, had a little Snoopy stamp in the corner on it. And um, it just, uh, she opens it up she, when she gets back to her desk and it's this typed up thing with no signature, no way of contacting the author. And it lays out this person describes him or herself as being part of the transition team, working inside Trump Tower, privy to things that are deeply troubling that the press needs to know about, including, you know, real concerns about conversations that Mike Flynn, who was the designated national security advisor, was having with Russian officials. Um, now, you guys know, so we've described this story, that this, this document uh, elsewhere, and people get confused. I mean, this is basically amounts to a roadmap for us or sort of a tip sheet, but it's not a source. There's because we don't know who it is. We don't even know. We can't confirm any of established that for certain that this person is who he or she represents himself to be. We can't print this. We can't run with this. We can only treat this as uh, some some guide to our lines of inquiry and our reporting. And that's how it worked. I'm a little surprised that uh, Ellen hasn't heard from Devin Nunes by now with a subpoena so he can identify who the uh, mole inside the deep state is who's uh, uh, going running to the Washington Post. Well, fortunately, he's busy running around Europe, right, trying to trying <laughs> okay. to find Christopher Steele. Yeah. Um, so speaking of Steele, you um, uh, the book deals with the Steele dossier and the efforts by Post reporters to try to verify um, the many allegations in the Steele dossier. We talked about the P-tape. You mentioned that remains unverified. There's no corroboration for that uh, yet. You talk about how um, Post reporters uh, Tom Hamburger and uh, 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 and a colleague went to Prague to try to verify whether Michael Cohen um, had been to Prague to meet with Russian officials uh, uh, on the um, on the collusion that was supposed to have been taking place during the campaign, and you came up empty-handed. Um, 
at this point, uh, as you've reviewed all of it, how much of the Steele dossier, uh, in your view, checks out? Um, how much doesn't at all and has been shot down? And how much uh, remains uh, in this murky area of we'll never know? Yeah, I think that um, that's a great question. I think that the Steele dossier is sort of this Rorschach test for for people now. The, the, the people on the one end of the political spectrum look at this one completely differently from others than left. But for news organizations, we were um, just trying to, we, I mean, we were just like astonished at the allegations in it from the start and just scrambling for a long time to try to get traction on those as reporting targets. And um, so I would say that big picture wise, man, that thing looks accurate and prescient, right? From the very first memo is describing a Russian operation to interfere in the election and throw it, help Donald Trump win uh, before anybody was saying that. And that's remarkable in hindsight when you look back at that. The more granular it gets, the harder it's been to confirm, uh, including the allegation that everybody knows about that Trump was consorting with prostitutes in the Ritz-Carlton in Moscow. It's not to say that any of that has been disproven. Uh, it just hasn't been substantiated yet. Uh, Greg, I wanted to go back to uh, that document that Ellen uh, Nakashima uh, found in her her, her uh, mailbox at the Washington Post, which you described as a kind of a roadmap to the investigation, because I think it does raise an interesting question about uh, the credibility of, of a lot of these um, allegations. And, and the reason I say that um, is because one of the things that was in that was, was this uh, – uh, information about uh, uh, Jared Kushner, President Trump's son-in-law, uh, trying to create a a back channel uh, to the uh, during the transition to the Russians, um, to the Kremlin, so that um, uh, uh, U.S. intelligence would not know about secret conversations and communications that they were having. And you know, it's 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 a pretty pretty astonishing, given that it was already known that the Russians had waged an unprecedented you know, a cyber assault on our election. And, and even the Russian ambassador, Kislyak, uh, is communicating back to his bosses in in, uh, in Moscow uh, saying what a kind of astonishing things, thing uh, this was uh, for, for Jared Kushner to do. And so my question is, um, is this, uh, is it possible that this is just uh, kind of a naivete on, on, uh, on Jared Kushner's part um, as opposed to, uh, you know, some you know, well thought out nefarious behavior, and that and that that kind of naivete um, actually drove a lot of the uh, behavior that looks really suspicious, but may not be part of some larger, uh, well organized uh, plot to collude by the Trump administration. How do you think about that? I mean, I think that's a perfectly reasonable way to look at this in some ways. Um, and that's been a question all along. Are they just naive, if not stupid sometimes, versus are they um, devious and or are they in- intentional here? Um, I would just note a few other data points, though, that, that make that argument a little harder to hold on to. Like, so we get this memo from somebody inside Trump Tower. We also know that there were other people inside the transition. I wrote about one who were 
deeply troubled at Flynn's conversations with Kislyak and the frequency of them and what they were talking about, for instance, to the point that they actually staged a mini intervention with Flynn during a meeting to try to impress upon him what, you know, just what are you doing? Don't you realize what happened here? Uh, and so there were people who were warning them and they are, they are, Flynn and others are disregarding these warnings, are not listening to them. Uh, and that just makes you wonder why, I think. Um, and it just happens. There's such a pattern to it. If they're, if they're, if naivete is really the reason that in the aftermath of a U.S. election, uh, that in which Russia becomes a dominant sort of storyline and is interfering, uh, you know, in a demonstrable way that the entire U.S. intelligence community calls out. And even after that, that's not enough to make them back away from Russia and say, you know, maybe we were cool with our conversations with these guys for a little while. I, I just find that beyond implausible some, in some way. So what's your alternative uh, explanation? I mean, I just feel like they really, I, I don't, I think there was all of this, uh, as you said earlier, a lot of this played out in the open. Uh, and that has been disorienting for all of us who have tried to cover it and understand it, that, that there is so much um, conduct and behavior here by Trump and his team toward Russia that is so deeply troubling in and of itself that just the fact that it happens in the open doesn't sanitize it or um, make it less so in some way. I try to do this, you know, when I get this question when I'm talking about this publicly, sometimes I try to make the audience do this little thought exercise. Like, what if we had learned weeks or months later that Trump had secretly communicated to the Kremlin, Russia, if you're listening, could you please look for those missing Hillary emails? And they had done so. And they actually had, in fact, launched a spear phishing effort to do that. I mean, it would be an enormous development, but somehow because it happens in the open, um, it confuses us. It's just not something we're able to process quite the same way. Hey, Greg, one, one, one area where you do have a lot of new uh, detail um, uh, is a part of the Russia scandal that I think may be uh, somewhat underappreciated and under-scrutinized, and, and that is um, you know, the massive and systematic effort uh, 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 to leverage of the Russians to leverage our social media platforms to spread disinformation and you know, sow discord among uh, the, the U.S. electorate. Um, what don't the American people fully understand about that effort, um, and uh, how does your uh, book fill in some of those uh, important details? I mean, I th- we devote more than a chapter to that, and thanks for asking that and mentioning it. I mean, it was a high priority for this book to try to really help readers understand that because it was so difficult to understand when those stories were were breaking at the time. Uh, and even for, I mean, we, we can look back now and you can see that Facebook itself couldn't comprehend what was happening inside on, on its own platform for much of 2016. And it's only in the aftermath that they really faced this deeper reckoning with, um, with what happened. So, I mean, what I would say is just, you know, so, so often you get this um, question or, or argument that, well, so what? There was some clunky messaging on Facebook from Russia. It proved to me that it altered a single vote. But I think now, when the, as, the, as much as we know about it now, and we know a lot about individual advertisements aimed, aimed at Black Lives Matter movement, aimed at different parts of the population that were highly sort of specialized to be divisive and to turn black Americans against Hillary Clinton and others, it's a, 
the, but the math of it ultimately is what's so overwhelming now. I mean, Facebook now acknowledges about, what is it, 120 million people in the United States were exposed to a significant amount of Russian propaganda during the election. And, we, and, it, and the outcome turns on fewer than 80,000 votes across three states. It's a massive, massive problem. And it's not, that's not to say there weren't other huge issues that were more important in the campaign, perhaps. I mean, I, I write in the book that Hillary Clinton's obvious flaws as a candidate and Jim Comey's uh, his curious and controversial decisions about the handling of the Hillary Clinton email investigation were obviously huge factors. But you can't dismiss the Russian interference if you know anything about the magnitude of it and the expertise that they deployed. Right. It, it doesn't have to be the only decisive factor. There could be multiple decisive factors. Right. And there's some of the cool stuff in the book is like the, the you know, interviews but that my colleague in Russia, Anton Troyanovsky, did with people who worked at the Internet Research Agency and described their day-to-day jobs of just churning out this crazy Orwellian content, watching uh, like House of Cards on Netflix to brush up on the American vernacular so that they come across as plausible. Well, we're going to have to wrap up in a minute, um, but we'll uh, just let you go back to your job. But I, I wanted to ask, what's your best guess as to whether uh, Bob Mueller is, is you know, wrapping, beginning to wind down, wrap up? Uh, how much longer do you think this will go? And- I don't think it goes on that much longer. I think we're in the final stretches. We see him sloughing off staff already. Um, but then I have to always caveat and say Mueller is running the tightest, most, most secretive ship in Washington right now, and who the hell knows. Greg, thanks for, um, thanks for joining us. Uh, the book, again, is The Apprentice, Trump, Russia, and the Subversion of American Democracy. Thanks so much, guys. We'll be back with more Skullduggery. All right. Now, um, in our continuing series of uh, uh, mini Newsweek reunions, um, we've got our old colleague, uh, David Kaplan, uh, on the phone. Uh, David, who's uh, got a a really interesting and timely new book out on the Supreme Court uh, called The Most Dangerous Branch Inside the Supreme Court's Assault on the Constitution. Uh, So welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for joining us. And I wanted to start. uh, did, did, Did you call me old? Old friend, as in you know, oh, I an know old colleague, old an old or, colleague. I mean, we've been we've been colleagues for a long time. A time. <laughs> yeah, hey, we're all old, and it happens, you know. Um, Speak for yourselves. <laughs> uh, so let me just start by asking you about the title of the book, because uh, uh, the most dangerous branch looks to be a, an ironic play on uh, Alexander Hamilton's line about the Supreme Court, the least dangerous branch. So explain the title. Well, obviously, the president, any president, can begin a nuclear war, so that can be dangerous, right? And Congress can pass foolish laws or no laws at all. But I argue in the book that at a more insidious level, it's the Supreme Court that's the most dangerous because its self-aggrandizement, its power grab over many decades, has resulted in less prestige for the court. It's resulted in enfeebled Congress. It's distorted presidential elections like in 2016 when a significant percentage of Trump voters chose Trump, even though they detested him, but they did so because of the court. And I think it helps lead to the kind of circus we had uh, in uh, recently with with Brett Kavanaugh. And at this particular moment, uh, with uh, uh, Brett Kavanaugh ascending to the Supreme Court um, and 
uh, the court now having a five to four conservative majority. There are a lot of people out there who are thinking it's the most dangerous branch because uh, it's going to tilt the uh, the country to the right uh, for uh, decades uh, decades to come. But you argue in your book that this is a uh, a bipartisan problem. Um, this is across the ideological spectrum. Liberal liberal justices and conservative justices are, are responsible, right? Yes, and of course, liberals are unhappy now. They were altogether pleased 30 years ago and maybe even 20 and 10 years ago with some decisions. Judicial activism is what the other guy does. But I argue in the book, we're all judicial activists, and that's my complaint in the book. You know, I interviewed a majority of the justices for the book. On background, I can't tell you which ones I talked to, even under relentless questioning by Isakoff, I won't tell you. <laughs> but one of the liberals... And one of the it hasn't even begun yet. <laughs> Excuse me. It hasn't even begun yet. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm 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 filibustering, even though they got rid of it. Uh, one of the liberals and one of the conservative justices each told me when I was giving them the gist of the book, I half agree with you, and they said so, of course, with a smile. And that's the problem. They just disagreed on which decisions represented uh, um, arrogance on the part of the court. I want the court to be more restrained on more cases across the board. That is not to say I want an impotent court. The court should be assertive. It should be protecting the uh, unpopular rights. It should be protecting minority rights. But too often, uh, it gets involved simply because it can. And, as I got the sense from many of the justices, they get involved because they look across the street at Congress and they look down the road uh, at the White House and they say, those branches aren't doing their jobs. If not them, it has to be us. But, you know, I've checked my Constitution, and I don't see any clause about if they're chuckleheads in the other branches of government, it falls to the Supreme Court to run the country. Okay, Justice Kaplan, um, give us two examples of um, liberal decisions that, uh, that you consider judicial activism improper, and two examples of conservative dis- improper judicial activist decisions. Yes, let's annoy everybody who's listening. <laughs> I argue, right. for example, that Roe v. Wade, and to a lesser extent, the same-sex marriage a decision were liberal decisions the court best should have not got involved in. Not because I disagree with their outcomes. I fully agree with their outcomes. Wow, wow. You, would, you would not get a single Democratic vote for confirmation based on that answer. I, I, I'm, 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 I think Clyburn told me I'm already too old, so I'm not <laughs> concerned. And on, on the conservative ledger, well, these days... If much past your bar mitzvah, you're too old for the Supreme Court. They really want young folks. On the conservative side, I'll give you three since you asked for two. Bush v. Gore deciding a presidential uh, a tie in 2000, the gun control ruling in 2008, and the campaign finance regulation ruling, Citizens United, on the conservative side. Yeah, I mean, If you those... ask me which are worse, right. I, I think Bush v. Gore is the worst decision of the court, probably since Dred Scott, but... They each have their defects. And actually, one of your uh, nuggets in the book is that Sandra Day O'Connor uh, came to r- realize that her vote uh, in Bush, uh, Bush v. Gore was, was, was wrong, right? Well, she acknowledged in years afterward, um, maybe about a decade, that the court best should have stayed out. But I report in the book, and I was astonished to hear this. You, you always want to learn stuff in reporting a book for a year or two that, that you didn't know. Only a few months after the ruling in late 2000, uh, her husband, now deceased, 
told a dinner, a dinner guest at a charity dinner in Washington, that his wife, Sandra Day, the justice, knew the ruling was wrong, but she ruled as she did because she wanted to retire to help take care of him. His health was beginning to deteriorate, and she would only leave the court if a Republican was in the White House. Saying a decade later, maybe we should have stayed out, is not the same thing as her husband saying shortly after the ruling, she knew it was wrong on the day she she was the decisive vote. I was stunned. So we've just been through this gut wrenching experience of the uh, of the Brett Kavanaugh uh, confirmation fight, um, which left a lot of people angry on all sides. Uh, we have people talking about uh, uh, major changes, packing the court, impeaching Kavanaugh, ending lifetime uh, tenure for justices. Uh, any of those um, you think have a shot? Any of those you would uh, endorse? Well, one of them I think is a shot. Uh, I, I saw at a speaking event uh, Jerry Nadler, the congressman who will probably head the impeachment committee. I mean the House Judiciary Committee. <laughs> uh, if the House, if Democrats take the House, and I, we were sort of kidding, and I said, "Who are you going to impeach first? And he he demurred but smiled. Uh, they can impeach Kavanaugh all they want. He's not going to be convicted in the Senate, so um, it's not going to go anywhere. They can talk term limits, getting rid of life tenure. That would require a constitutional amendment. It will never happen. The party, quote-unquote, in power would not agree to it, much as, of course, 20 or 40 years ago, they might agree to it. But court packing, I think, is a real possibility. In order to add seats to the court, to make it larger, it only takes an act of Congress... And, and a presidential signature. And if the Democrats take over the House, the Senate, and the presidency in 2020, I think you could see a real um, push toward court packing. It didn't work. FDR proposed in 1937 when Supreme Court decisions uh, weren't going in his, his way, when New Deal legislation was being thrown out by the justices. And people on both sides of the aisle attacked uh, court packing. Quickly enough, the court reversed course, so... There wasn't any need for it, but I think in the hyper-partisan world in which we live, you could see court packing get momentum. Would well, I yeah. endorse that? Yeah, I think I would. So, I think I would endorse it because sometimes uh, to rebuild the institution, you have to destroy it. Court packing would be really bad for the court. It would clearly bring the court down to the same political level as the other branches, and you could imagine in 2025 or 2029, the Republicans saying, okay, we're going to put more. We're going to put our own people on the court. Eventually, the court. Eventually, they're going to need a bigger building. Yeah, the, I mean, the court will have more more people on the Supreme Court than in Congress. I mean, it'd just be a. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, that, that would take a while. Yeah, it might but, take a while. Uh, uh, there's land nearby. They could they could make the place big, bigger. Yeah. I, the hope would be that eventually both sides agree to disarm, even the party in power. But I think I would endorse that because. I don't know how else you reign in the court. I think Chief Justice Roberts represents the best hope for the court that maybe he's a conservative. Don't confuse him with a moderate that Justice Kennedy sometimes was. And Justice uh, Roberts has been in the vanguard of, of campaign finance uh, 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 decisions, holding that the First Amendment prevented campaign finance regulation, Citizens United, and he's also... Um, try to eliminate racial preferences in any number of areas of the law. But I think more important 
than those rulings. It is possible that much as he did in Bush in, in uh, the Obamacare ruling, he might place the institutional needs of the court above particular decisions. Is yeah. it likely? Yeah. No. I wanted I to ask. You, I wanted to ask you actually because I thought your portrait of of uh, Justice Roberts was interesting and and nuanced. Um, on the one hand, an institutionalist, uh, but, but there are also questions about how much of it is. Uh, uh, about his own personal reputation as opposed to the court's reputation and how he wants to be viewed uh, historically. Um, but also, I thought, um, well, first of all, uh, you you report on the extraordinary tensions between uh, Justice Roberts and, and, uh, and Neil Gorsuch, who was the last justice to be put on the court by uh, Donald Trump. Um, uh, really seems like no love lost there. Um, and, no, uh, they don't. I, and, although he's not... It's several, several, several wags at the court. I'm not telling you clerk, justice, whomever, but a lot of folks will say that Justice Gorsuch has performed the impossible, that he's unified the court. How so? They all can't stand him. It's a bit exaggerated, but it's more than rookie hazing. You would not expect Justice Gorsuch to be the one who they'll go out you know, for a beer with. Oh wait, a beer's a wrong. That, I should mention beer. Sorry. <laughs> what 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 is it about Gorsuch uh, that that uh, inspires uh, that uh, animosity? You know, bull in a china shop. Mm-hmm. At some the court the court functions by seniority. Seniority's important, and he's the rookie, and he came in there uh, guns a blazing at oral argument at conference. Uh, he dissed the, the chief at the very first conference, the private meeting of the justices uh, that only they. Um, attend, not even law clerks. And shortly after Gorsuch was confirmed, the chief invited him to the first conference. And Gorsuch said, I'm not up to speed on cases. Um, we haven't done ethics reviews on them. And I have to take, I have a prior engagement taking one of my daughters on a college tour. And that annoyed the chief, justifiably so, because he figured the press would get wind of it. And we'd write about um, the sort of nonsense of the court. And we did. I think you're quite right. In, in describing Roberts's own uh, uh, con- concerns about his place in history and about uh, the court's uh, institutional prestige, but the two aren't at odds with each other. But make no mistake, I report in the book that uh, a few years ago, Roberts was going to lunch with some clerks, and one of them asked quite innocuously, how do you like the job? And, and to the clerk's surprise, the chief said something more than, you know, it's a great honor being the 17th, just, 17th Chief Justice in history. He said, you know, there'll only be one John Marshall, the chief who served at the beginning of the 19th century for more than three decades and is considered the most important justice in the history of the court. He says, you know, only Marshall had the chance at greatness. I was born in the wrong era. And I thought that was a telling example. This chief wants to be great, and I think he may ironically, have the opportunity. In many ways, Kavanaugh is the anti-Gorsuch. He's a, a guy who's uh, affable, uh, seems to get along with everybody. Uh, and I was struck uh, by, first of all, his swearing in, where you had Ruth Bader Ginsburg and uh, and and Justice Breyer sitting there with Justice Thomas, all attending his swearing in, and the initial reports of his first... Um, uh, his first case, uh, Elena, uh, Justice Kagan, and he were getting along famously and yucking it up after the oral arguments. Kavanaugh is a creature of Washington. He pretty much left town only to go to college and, and law school, and he has relationships 
with most of the members of the court. Uh, he and Roberts briefly served together, um, if I recall the dates correctly. Elena Kagan, when she was dean at Harvard Law School, hired Brett uh, to teach there. Brett is a popular guy in Washington, even among journalists, heaven, heaven forbid. Um, Gorsuch was an out-of-towner and just doesn't do as well uh, with people. So it doesn't surprise me at all that Kavanaugh showed what he showed. What, did, what, what shocked me was his performance at that press conference uh, that's at that uh, ceremonial swearing-in. You could have argued that after what happened, maybe he had to go to the White House for the ceremony, but you stand up, you say, thank you very much, Mr. President, it's a great honor, I'll work hard to do my job, and then you sit down. Instead, he delivered a speech that, if you close your eyes, could just as well have been delivered by somebody from the well of the Senate, and I think that makes him look terrible. I think it makes the court look terrible. You see at one point where Kavanaugh is thanking uh, Mitch McConnell, you see Clarence Thomas clapping. You can't do that. What happened to the rule, you know, at State of the Unions, where uh, State of the Union addresses, the, the justices sit there uh, saying nothing. All right, maybe Sam Alito says not true when Obama criticizes something in the Citizens United ruling, but typically they sit there uh, stone-faced. And I think it was a bad moment for the court and showed... Uh, terrible judgment on Kavanaugh's part. I want to follow up on this because, David, you know, I've been saying all along that that uh, Kavanaugh's conduct um, throughout this whole process has been the conduct of, of someone who's, uh, you know, essentially a, uh, a political operative, um, you know, in, in judges' clothing. Obviously, he's also a, a, an accomplished uh, jurist, uh, but, you know, he's kind of reached back to his roots as a, as a political operative. But having, uh, you know, gone through... Uh, that unbelievably uh, uh, polarizing and contentious confirmation hearing, and the, and knowing that the country has gone through, uh, you know, something as painful as what we just went through with with this confirmation hearing, d- don't you think that, you know, he may have felt a, an obligation, and maybe it's not such a bad thing to stand up there and say, okay, it was a very painful, very brutal fight, but now we go back to the business of of, of judging, and I'm going to be impartial. And I thought it was important that he said, I have not been embittered by this experience, which a lot sure. of people probably— I think, those two, I, think, I think those two or three sentences might have been fine, but he went about 15 sentences too far, and you, Danny, as a fine editor, would, would know that less is more. I think yeah. he did himself harm— um, in the public's eye, not among uh, re- uh, movement uh, Republicans, but that's not his audience. If he's trying to reassure the country, that was not, there were parts of that speech that I thought uh, were outrageous. Now, I don't think that'll hurt him within the institution. The court has shown time and again that it moves on. Uh, it, there were no, there was no bit bitterness. Clarence, Clarence, Clarence Thomas. Thomas, he's one of the uh, most popular justices on the, on the exactly. court, right? Yeah. And, you know, I, I asked various justices about the legacy of, of the Thomas Hill hearings almost 30 years ago, and they recognize it took place. Nobody forgets it, neither do law clerks, but you move on, and it doesn't hurt that he's as popular a figure in the building as anybody. Uh, he's popular among the justices, he's popular um, among staff in the building. So I think that helps. I think Brett will be popular as well. And the reporting in this book, I found out quite accidentally how popular he was within the D.C. courthouse, where he's been a federal judge for more than a decade. I do not think um, 
he will have any issues. But in terms of the public's uh, view of the court, I don't think he necessarily helped himself. Right. And and look, uh, we should point out, uh, you know, he took a lot of flack, uh, deservedly so, uh, for uh, his... Um, his testimony, uh, his angry testimony, where he uh, referenced the revenge of the Clintons uh, and uh, the anger over the Trump uh, election as being the reason he was being um, uh, accused of uh, of all these heinous things. But let's not forget, um, as I think you point out in the book, uh, Justice Ginsburg, during the presidential election, called one of the two candidates, now president, Donald Trump, a faker who had no consistency at all, who just said whatever was in his mind. Uh, uh, a lot of people thought uh, Kavanaugh's uh, conduct disqualified him from r- making decisions or ruling on cases involving uh, liberal interest groups. But uh, Ruth Gator Ginsburg, by the same token, uh, isn't recusing herself from issues involving the think, Trump I think, administration. I think there's a false equivalency between those. I think Ginsburg was Why justifiably... I think Ginsburg was justifiably criticized for those remarks during the 2016 um, campaign, and several of her colleagues, as I write in the book, uh, privately chastised her for it. But I think in degree, I'm not saying that every dog gets one bite, but I think in degree and context, what happened with Kavanaugh was far worse. Now, he is a wise politician, in in addition to be, you know, (laughs) the the conservative and, and the partisan that he was, working for Ken Starr and the Clinton investigation and working in the Bush White House. But it would not surprise me to see Kavanaugh in the next year make some speeches at law schools doing exactly what Danny um, uh, complimented him for the other night and trying to uh, show bipartisanship, a little bit of humility, um, to sound more like a judge. What surprised me about the other night was at that point he had won. You could argue that whatever excesses he displayed in his testimony right after Dr. Ford. He had to satisfy the President of the United States, who might have pulled his nomination that evening if Kavanaugh didn't perform well. So you could argue the ends justify the means, however overboard he might have gone. But once he was confirmed, once he's at the White House, he's done. He's on the court for life, short of extraordinary circumstances. At that point, you ought to act far more removed than he did. And remember, Obama's two nominees... Uh, there wasn't there wasn't even uh, a White House ceremony. I would say just appearances are important. That's all. Yeah. What kind of justice is he going to be? Uh, uh, acknowledging that my pred- predictions are invariably wrong, um, although I was right with uh, with Kavanaugh from a year ago. Not exactly a bold prediction. I think he will be uh, t- certainly the right of where Justice Kennedy was, but I do not think he will be as far to the right as Justices Thomas Alito and Gorsuch are or will be. I think Kavanaugh will surprise some movement conservatives and veer closer to the center that Chief Justice Roberts represents. Calling John Roberts a centrist is silly. Uh, he's a conservative. He, will, he passes for the middle of the court, given the other members uh, of the institution. But I think Kavanaugh will be more of an institutionalist uh, than three diehard conservatives on the court. And I don't necessarily believe in a lot of uh, psychobabble when it comes to judges, but I wouldn't be surprised, at least in the near term, five years, to see Kavanaugh bend over backwards 
to be more of a centrist and disarm his critics. So that, and, for and, example, on Roe v. Wade. Right, and I was going to say I the do reason not think you will see. Ka- right, the the reason for that uh, you're going to say you do not you you would not see Kavanaugh kind of wholesale overturning Roe versus Wade, right? I don't think you would anyway, but I think yeah. all the more after hearings, I don't think they need to. Right. I think they can, if various state regulations limiting abortion come before the court, I think you'll see a 5-4 majority of the court say, that's constitutional, that's not an undue burden, which is the court's test for determining constitutionality of, a, of, of an abortion regulation. But once you uphold the regulation about consent, or a waiting period, or uh, what abortion clinics have to have by way of equipment and other stuff. And all those things obviously are limitations on abortion. Once you uphold them, there's no need to declare Roe v. Wade unconstitutional, and it's in the court's interest not to do so. I think much more than issues like abortion, and certainly same-sex marriage, which is resolved and has not been controversial, except perhaps when it comes to the religious freedom of of employers and, and such, I think you will see the conservative majority of this court go after federal regulatory power. What the lawyers refer to as Chevron deference. Chevron, I think the vast yeah. discretion that the court that the court has given to the EPA, the SEC, OSHA, and so forth. Those agencies have vast discretion to implement broad statutory language from Congress, and I think you'll see that cut back. That's what Steve Bannon's great grail was. Um, in the White House, it is, and it is the grail of a lot of conservative lawyers like Boyd and Gray, the first George Bush's uh, um, uh, um, White House counsel. For a lot of those conservatives, they don't really care about the social issues. What they want to do is curtail uh, federal power. The irony, of course, of cutting back on the powers of the agencies is to the extent Congress does nothing, who then makes the decisions? It's the nine unelected, unaccountable justices, and that's my complaint um, in the book. One uh, one last question: uh, You mentioned executive power. Uh, if uh, some aspect of the Mueller investigation winds up in the Supreme Court, whether it be a subpoena, whether it be an issue about uh, indicting a president, uh, or something related to that, um, how does Kavanaugh come down? You'd have to show me what the specifics are um, of the case, but I don't think there is any chance that he would recuse himself. Justices don't like recusing themselves, because unlike lower courts, where you can find some other judge to hear the case, there are no substitutes for the nine justices, and going to an even number of justices um, just sets the court, uh, sets things up for trouble. So I think all the talk of recusal is silly. He won't recuse himself. Um, but I think it will depend on the merits of the case. And, and my hunch is that even though they ruled 5-4 to four, uh, in, in, uh, last term in Trump against Hawaii, the travel ban case, I think you would see some effort on the part of the, of, of, of the court um, to not have as divided as the institution. You know, it has been reported, as far as I've seen, Justice Kagan, a few weeks ago at UCLA, spoke to a group and talked about minimalism and gradualism and restraint. She was talking about it in the context of a court with eight justices on it, because Kavanaugh had not yet uh, been confirmed. And she was um, referring back to the period in 2016 and 17, after Scalia died and before Gorsuch was confirmed. And I think uh, she was suggesting that maybe the court would do better 
to try to uh, uh, rule small, to go small and not big. But, of course, she's now one of only four, and the other five uh, have the majority. So we'd have to see. Although in some instances in that might be some... In some instances, that might, might that might be an approach that that would appeal to Roberts as well. Well, clearly appeal to Roberts, and I think to some extent, Kavanaugh, to his credit, and and I heard from lots of um, academics and judges, both sides of the aisle, in the reporting of this book, who all said that leave aside ideology and politics, he is one of the ten, twenty best judges in the country. You wouldn't have heard that necessarily about Gorsuch, or for that matter, Sotomayor, a decade earlier. So I think whatever else it is you think about Kavanaugh, and whether you think he should have been disqualified from the court because, as retired Justice Stevens thought, because of the sexual assault charges, I think as a judge, he will turn out to be closer to the middle than than people expect. That may not satisfy his critics, but I think it's the case. So despite all of the rawness, the raw feelings and the anger out there, um, you think that, um, that, uh, just, that Justice Kavanaugh may, may surprise people? Um, well, I think he may surprise people on the merits, but I think that raw anger um, is not likely to dissipate uh, so quickly, yeah. and perhaps justifiably so. I was surprised that there were no protests in the courtroom on the first day of argument. Hey, you got any um, uh, public appearances while you're here in Washington this weekend? I do. I I happen to be speaking at Politics and Prose up on Upper Connecticut Avenue on Friday at 7 p.m. And my my questioner, my interrogator, will be none other than Mike Isikoff. I've been holding my fire for that event. Uh, I'm giving you a pass on this one. Uh, but, I am really uh, anyway. concerned, and I'm, I've already called my doctor to up my dosage. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, listen, uh, thanks for joining us on Skullduggery. It's a real pleasure, and uh, best to you, Danny. All right. Good to, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on, and we'll have you back on again soon, I hope. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. Thanks to Khalid Safori, Greg Miller, and David Kaplan for joining us on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on Sirius XM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time with replays at 10 p.m. and then Sundays at 2 a.m. and 1 p.m. We'll talk to you next week. 